From News Talk 580-1059 KMJ, this is the Matty Report, Valley Views Edition. Now here's your host, Mark Kepler. After 40 years with the California Nonpartisan Legislative Analyst Office and the last 10 years as its chief, Matt Taylor is retiring, just the fifth person to serve in that position in the office's 77-year history. We'll ask him how state politics and public policy debates, particularly over the state budget, have changed over his time in state government, and why integrity and civility still matter when it comes to crafting good public policy. Additional funding for the Maddie Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, harvesting health and happiness around the world, as well as support from Era Energy LLC, Bonner Family Foundation, Community Medical Centers, Harris Ranch Inn and Restaurant, Nossaman LLC, Sagasser Watkins and Wheeland, and Valley Children's Hospital. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. Perhaps no one is more well-known and influential in the State Capitol and unknown to most Californians as our guest, Mac Taylor, California's Legislative Analyst. He's stepping down after 40 years with the Legislative Analyst Office, the last 10 years as its leader. I've asked him to kind of get his unique perspective on California's political process generally and the state budget in particular. Welcome back to the Matty Report. Nice to be with you, Mark. Um, so how would you describe the work of the Legislative <coughs> Analyst Office? Well, the office was uh, set up in 1941, and um, the legislature at that first time... First one in the country, right. First one in the country, um, and I think the legislature was tired of being dependent on the executive branch, mm -hmm. and so it wanted its own information source. So I think the two really important things about the office is that we are legislative staff serving the legislature as an institution, and we have a mission to examine the operations of state and local governments and try to come up with ideas to make them work either better or, or more efficiently. Uh, so my folks, in, we, we go out and we look at programs and we talk to people and we try to provide information for the legislature so they can do their oversight role. Yeah, kind of the fraud, waste, and abuse that people always focus on with state government. Not so much the fraud aspect, but, you know, the waste. Made. How can you do things more efficiently and more effectively uh, as a state government? Yeah, I don't think you have to go to the fraud and waste for right. most stuff. Certainly state auditor can handle, can handle the... Well, no, but it's, it's just even in our own lives and the things that, that we deal with, you can do things better. Right, right. You know, it's interesting. You know, people hear the term legislative in your title, and I think they think your office is somehow partisan, that you might do the bidding of whatever legislative party's in power. That's not it at all, is it? Well, we don't think so. <laughs> uh, the, the second legislative analyst, a gentleman by the name of A. Allen Post, which only old-timers will now remember, uh, he really set up the reputation of the office as operating in a nonpartisan manner. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's really one of the most crucial things that the way we operate, it describes the way we operate. Um, and, you know, I've been, as you said, been here in the office for 40 years, uh, almost equal time with Republican governors and Democratic governors. And we've done our job exactly the same way, no matter sort of who's in that position. You know, it's interesting. The LAO is oftentimes compared to the Federal Congressional Budget Office or the CBO, but the LAO actually, your office operates a little differently than the CBO. How so? Well, like we said, we, we were established in 41. The CBO was, was created in the mid-70s. And I think they looked around and certainly looked at our office as one model that they might want to emulate. Um, and it's a great office. They have some incredibly talented, capable people. But there's one thing that they don't do. They don't make recommendations. Mm -hmm. So that if they did a report on some topic, they might offer options. But they wouldn't recommend that, Congress, you do this. Right. And I think they felt, uh, the drafters of the law that created CBO, I think just felt it would make it 
too visible, too controversial? I, I think it makes it more difficult. If you're making recommendations, you're sticking your head out there a little bit, and someone is not going to be happy. But uh, we have, we've always done that. We don't do it in every case, mm -hmm. but uh, we try to push to recommendations, again, to help the legislature in, in, in helping them think about what direction they might want to go. Because they can always push back for whatever, if they have reasons and justifications, Absolutely. it sharpens the decision-making process. I think that's the point. We're trying to help them make as good as decisions as possible. You know, um, the LAO is probably best known for its work on the budget. Um, and I, you know, I said this to you the first time we met. I'm going to say it again um, the last time we meet here. A longtime Capitol reporter had a unique way of describing the work of your office, and I think this is a great quote. He said, quote, think of the LAO as the conscience of the, of the Capitol. Collectively, they are the skunk that ruins the, bu the budget garden party that the governor and legislature would otherwise enjoy every year, unquote. So would you describe your role in the state budget process? Yeah. And by the way, the skunk is a compliment. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know why you like the skunk metaphor here, Mark. <laughs> Um, our role, we're, we're primarily known for our budget role, uh, as sort of a mm -hmm. fiscal office. It's not all we do, we have policy issues too, but we always have had a strong budget role. So uh, when the governor's budget comes out each January, one of our biggest job is helping the legislature understand what is in the budget, describing what's in the budget, assessing it, offering alternatives perhaps to what the governor has proposed. We also have a strong role in doing fiscal forecast. We do uh, expenditure, revenue, economic forecast. And we're the only office that is, is, in effect, a counterpart to the administration's estimating group. And I think, again, that helps the legislature have their own independent voice on those key matters. Because sometimes, if you go forward, we have had governors who have kind of, I don't want to say lowballed it, but they've been very conservative in their, in their revenue estimates um, because they don't want to spend as much money. You can come in and say, well, wait a second, the revenues are a little bit better, or vice versa. It, uh, happened, it happened the other way, I remember, in a prior administration where they uh, had a a factor that they'd added for economic growth or something, and we're going to have a billion rosy. dollars more. And I think, uh, again, the, the legislature has somebody can turn to just assess those claims and sometimes offer them an alternative to them, but hopefully just help them have a richer and better understanding of what their fiscal situation is. Okay, well, more of our, with our conversation with Mac Taylor, California's legislative analyst, in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Mac Taylor, California's legislative analyst, who's retiring after working at the state capitol since Jerry Brown was first elected governor back in 1978. Something's on change. Puts I guess. things in perspective. You're both leaving at the same time. Um, so, can we tell us a little bit about your background? Um, you know, what drew you to public service generally and the LAO in particular? Well, I was a political science major in college, and like a lot of young people, you know, you're interested in in the issues of the day, the current current events, and things. Um, and I was fortunate to have a, a, a professor there who uh, showed me some internships and got me involved that way and uh, turned me on to public policy programs, which are master's programs that are sort of have quantitative and economic um, uh, emphasis in their, in their programs. And I think as I went through school, I got much more interested in policy than maybe and in you're politics. And you're very humble. I, you know, I, you went to Princeton. It's a school that a lot of us, you know, Wow, that's a very impressive. And, and then you graduate from Princeton in 1978. You take a job with the LAO. The timing. Timing was not great. <laughs> I'd accepted in the spring of that year, and uh, then Proposition 13 passed, right. which were all sorts of accounts. Oh, this is going to decimate you know, state and local services. Turn the car around. Yeah, I'm coming across country thinking, man, I don't even have a job. Oh, man, that's, that's pretty interesting. But, uh, but the LAO was, uh, was clearly uh, an obvious choice if you were coming back to California. If you wanted mm -hmm. to do, especially nonpartisan, policy work, that's one place you would certainly apply. Yes, you're more focused, it seems, on policy than politics. Yes, absolutely, and, and more so as I went through school. Yeah. Um, so who appoints a legislative analyst? How does that selection process work? Is it always a unanimous selection? How does that work? Well, we actually um, 
have a joint committee, the Joint Legislative Budget Committee, that oversees the office and makes the appointment for the legislative analyst. Uh, and, they, and they've only had to do that four times in the, in the 77 years. Um, and there, there's no process laid out necessarily. I, uh, necessarily, it has to follow uh, certain steps or anything. I think the past couple of times you've had a subcommittee that's made up of both Democrats and Republicans to try to winnow through the candidates and come up with a selection. But it's not always unanimous, no. But I would think, though, that you know, that's an incredibly important position. And if you want to kind of, you know, kind of have uh, public policy discussions turn in a certain direction, there'd be a lot of pressure to get your person in as a legislative analyst. How do you keep that process kind of pure? You know, I think the, the members have realized that the office is a little bit different in mm -hmm. the way it was set up and what it does. And, um, you know, you'd like to think they'll do, that, they'll do that again because I think they realize what is required to, to maintain that sort of nonpartisanship. So um, what are some of the essential qualities that you think are important in a legislative analyst? Well, I think you could list, uh, you know, a lot of things uh, if, for anybody heading up any mm -hmm. sort of office. I, I think a couple of essential ones, though. It has to be a person who has that, that nonpartisan background that has either done work like that, can relate to it, and would be accepted to all parties, not, not just the two parties in the legislature, but the perception throughout state government this is a person that, that we can deal with. But I think you, you do have to have an analytically rigorous person. I, th I think it helps to have uh, some strong quantitative skills, to have a background in public finance, because those are the kind of issues that I've had to deal with, my predecessors have had to deal with. And so having that kind of background, I think, can be extraordinarily helpful. You were talking about your predecessor, your, your most recent predecessor, the person right before you was Elizabeth Hill. She was the first woman to head up the California Legislative Analyst Office. She did that for 22 years. Uh, that's hard to believe. That was a long time. What did you learn from her? Oh. Well, I was fortunate to be a deputy under Liz mm -hmm. for like 17 years, so I did get to work with her very closely. And hopefully I picked up, just either through osmosis, a lot of things, because Liz had a lot of remarkable qualities. She was incredibly hardworking, very methodical. Uh, she had a great way with people, whether they were inside the office or outside the office. Uh, and a, just a person of really high integrity. Um, so, you know, just watching her work uh, was, a, was a great sort of way to, to, uh, to mentor. I remember asking her a question once, and she was, boom, the answer, a lot like you, boom, the answer right away. And also was expecting a follow-up. <laughs> uh, she, she was, I said, boy, you better be on your toes when you're around this person. Incredibly well-prepared, always. Yeah. Um, anyone else role model for you? Well, you know, I think you learn from just, I, I've had the pleasure of working with incredibly talented people over those 40 years, both inside the office and, and outside in state government. Um, but I think my first, the first analyst that I worked for, Bill Hamm, who was Liz's predecessor, uh, and took over for it from AL and Post. And uh, uh, Bill was another person of great integrity, but also did incredibly sharp. He was one of the most analytically rigorous people I've, I've run into and was able to quickly get to the nub of an issue, right. which I think given all the things that you have to deal with, it was a quality that I really admired, his ability to, whether it was editing a document and quickly get to what is it that we need to say. Uh, so I certainly would include him in the, the, the people I consider as mentors. You know, I was practicing law uh, before I did, did this job, and I used to work with someone who was just that same way. I mean, he could hit the issue, get rid of all the noise, get right to the point. Uh, it was just amazing. Yeah. Um, get rid of all, all, the, all the background stuff. Well, the California Legislative Analyst is often asked to provide an unbiased assessment on most of the, most of the critical public policy issues facing the state. So what is it like to be asked to block out all the political noise and dispassionately analyze the state's most critical public policy issues? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. 
Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with the retiring California legislative analyst, Mac Taylor, uh, who po politicians of all stripes look to for an unbiased assessment regarding some of the most significant public policy issues facing the state of California. So I imagine that one of your greatest challenges came during the Great Recession, uh, with this multi-billion dollar budget shortfalls and the, the state's general budget crisis. And I recall you saying when we first met uh, during that time that uh, the state was looking at $20 billion shortfalls, deficits, as far as the eye could see. Um, and to put it in perspective, the budget at the time was about $100 billion. So that was a pretty big chunk of money. Uh, you've had to make some pretty tough calls over the time. Uh, you've referred to some ideas put out by certain governors as quote-unquote ill-conceived. And your analysis seems to have its effect more often than not. Wouldn't you agree? <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned the Great Recession. Uh, I took over the office really right at the time when we were learning how bad things were. Yeah, I was, we were talking before we started the, the, the taping today, and we were saying, you, know, you started with Proposition 13 uh, at the LAO, and then you became the LAO at the Great Recession. I'm wondering what's going to happen now. What, what, what do you think? say? I'm an omen? For, I'm a bad <laughs> omen. <laughs> it, it was a really tough time. Um, and the news just got worse and worse. $20 billion, that would have been great if that was the worst of our problems. And so you sort of felt bad. You were always going to the legislative leadership telling them, I'm sorry, you know, it's, your problem is now even worse after you've taken all these actions to correct your, your problem. But I, I hope the office uh, was able to help in the sense of, um, again, providing our fiscal forecast, I think, was, was very helpful because they had numbers that were not just from the administration that they could assess their, their situation. We talked a lot about out years and structural mm -hmm. problems to see if your problem was going to get worse. Was it getting better? To give them a little yeah. bit longer perspective. Right, it took them out of that short-term focus and, you know, further out. And we talked a lot about the whole revenue volatility. Why were we in this situation? And we were, I think, one of the first to sort of so talk about would, that. Some could argue that it's maybe gotten worse over time. It has gotten a little bit worse over time. It, it has. Yeah. Uh, but even just helping people understand what revenue volatility meant. Right. And then what does that mean? Well, it means you have a couple of ways to deal with it, one of which was building reserves, right. which we stressed. And we have made tremendous progress in that area. Yeah. Um, you know, um, a Sacramento Bee reporter once told me that one topic that generates the most responses from his readers were stories on California's unfunded liabilities generally, but specifically about the state's unfunded public employee retiree liabilities. You know, the governor's talked about this thing called a structural deficit. Is that what he's talking about? No, it's a little bit different. The okay. structural deficit typically is just comparing how much money you got coming in with your spending commitments. Okay. And typically, if you're spending more and it goes on for many years, you've got a structural problem, okay. not just a one-time problem. The unfunded liabilities can be related to that issue. Okay. Um, but the unfunded liabilities are really someone's problem from the past that is carried over to you. It means we didn't fund them when we should have. And now we have these responsibilities that you still have to take care of. There are some big ticket items there. You're talking about public employee pensions, you know, including teacher pensions. You're talking about public employee retirement uh, health care. We're talking billions and billions of dollars. There are billions and billions. There are hundreds of billions of dollars. But I think what people need to, to look at maybe a little more closely, you do need to look at the size of the, of the numbers, but you really then need to ask, is the legislature budgeting in their annual budget? Are they providing mm -hmm. for funds that will take care of that problem over time? So he's sort of amortizing those liabilities in the same way that you pay off a mortgage over 30 years. So we've done a lot better job, the legislature and the governor in recent years, to recognizing those liabilities and providing funding streams that will help reduce the nature of those problems. And I, I'm feeling we're going to be talking about this for a while. Oh, yes. A, it's not going to go away. Whole nother, whole nother but we have, we have made some really good progress in recent years. Yeah. Well, let me kind of switch gears a little bit, talk about another one of the duties of the LAO, and that's to provide a uh, financial analysis of the propositions on the California ballot. 
Uh, I imagine that explaining the real cost of some of these measures, particularly when they're popular, probably going to annoy some people and please others. Uh, any particular situations come to mind, and how would you handle it? Well, I'm not sure I want to talk about particular situations. <laughs> no names. Um, but, you know, it is um, become, a, it's the one thing we do that's not a legislative function. We don't do it for the legislature. We do it, in fact, for the people as a whole, and there was responsibility given to us. And it's a really important one that we take very seriously. And we know these measures are controversial. You think about the things that have been improved in recent years. Uh, some of the more controversial things have been on the ballot. Yeah. What we do, though, I think, to try to deal with it is we always meet with proponents and opponents. And we want to hear what they have to say. They typically provide us with lots of good information. Uh, we challenge them. We press them on their claims. Um, but they know that we want to hear from them. Yeah, I got to tell you, when I, was, when I was reading that about the LAO, I was kind of surprised. I thought maybe you'd kind of keep yourself above the fray and kind of do a dispassionate analysis and not talk to anybody. But actually, I can see the point of getting in there and hearing what is your best argument for, what's your best argument against. Oh, we like to talk to lots of people, not just yeah. proponents and opponents. There may be other people mm -hmm. who are more disinterested. Stakeholders. Whatever information people want to give us. And then we try to have to sift through it because oftentimes we're told exactly opposite, contrary right. things right. by the proponents and right. opponents. So we're going to have to find our way through it. But we certainly have found that that process, I think, helps give people confidence that we're, we are at least listening to them. Yeah, and that, and that means a lot. And I want to ask one last question in the segment. That is about a related issue, uh, ballot box budgeting, the practice of making these major budget decisions by propositions. What makes these things particularly challenging is that unlike the normal budget process, these things are commonly written into the California Constitution and can't be changed unless you have another ballot measure. I mean, what are your thoughts on ballot box budgeting? It's even worse than that. Even if they're not constitutional, they're statutory, they can only be changed by a sub subsequent vote of the people. So it really restricts the legislature. And my concern, and what I find really to be a very bad trend, is that when we've passed tax increases on cigarettes, on cannabis, on millionaires, they've had designated ways they wanted to spend that money as opposed to just putting it into our general fund. And that means those priorities that the proponents of those measures set up in that year, those are your priorities now from now in perpetuity. Forever, right. And that's just contrary, in my view, to good budgeting. Okay. Well, up next, we're going to talk about the importance of integrity and civility in the political process. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with retiring California legislative analyst, Mac Taylor, about the need, people might say now more than ever, for a credible fact-based source of information and analysis regarding public policy issues facing the state. You know, um, despite the fact that the LAO has had to take uh, some positions, recommendations that might upset the governor or the legislature from time to time, there's been very little turnover in your position. You're just the fifth um, legislative analyst over the last 77 years. Uh, are you at all concerned that this hands-off approach may change in this age of hyper-partisanship? Well, I mean, I think you're always concerned just because the office is a little bit different and you are, as you said, you're in a partisan environment. So, I mean, that's always an, an issue that's out there. But I have to tell you, the legislature has, has really been great about letting us do our job. I mean, in 10 years, no, no member has ever called me over and in any way tried to influence the way that we did our job. So it, it doesn't mean that they, all, they accept what we say all the time. And, but they do not, if, you, if you agree with them. Well, if they, if they agree with us, they like to use our as supporting evidence. But that's not the way it's supposed to work. We're right. supposed to present our information and they can do with it whatever they want because right. we're, we're the staff. But I think that they have been great about letting us do our job and, mm -hmm. and, and not interfering with that analytical process. That, that's pretty amazing. You know, uh, Senator uh, Patrick Moynihan once famously remarked that uh, you have the right to your own opinion, but you don't have a right to your own facts. Um, today, it seems that's one of the problems, that people can't agree on just what are the facts. Um, what do you think needs to be done to help foster a better understanding of what are the facts? 
Well, maybe, you know, process is really important, which is why I think you have a budget process, you have hearings on bills, and it shouldn't just be sort of pro forma things. The pro that hearing is to help you determine what are the most appropriate facts. How reliable are we? Can we have confidence in them? And I think a lot of times we just have to um, understand that, uh, you know, people come at things differently. Uh, you and I might agree to a two or three facts, but you might weight the importance of those facts differently. So I think if we spent more time understanding why is it that we differ, why is it that we weight different, uh, different facts differently, or our understanding of those facts differ, I think we could probably get a long ways further down the road of at least understanding what our differences are, and we can approach those things in a perhaps more civil way. Yeah, one of the things that they, they used to say about Senator Matty was that he said about his opponents, never assume the worst in your opponent, assume the best intentions of your opponent. They're, you're both aiming at point B, the same maybe goal, just have a different perspective on how to get there. You may be, you may not be, but whatever, you want to try to understand what your, your, that person is trying to do right. and what is it the way they're going about it. I always tell, you know, I always, when I look for arguments that are being made by my own staff, uh, sometimes I want them to, okay, now make the other case. Because that will show, do you really understand the other person's position right. and what is the strongest sort of opposing points that help you then hopefully get closer to the truth. Yeah, we actually encourage our students to do legislative internships. If you're a Democrat, go work in a Republican office. Uh, if you're a Republican, go work in a Democratic office. One or two things are gonna happen. Either one, you're gonna modify your positions based on your new information, or it's gonna strengthen your position because you've heard the best arguments and you think yours are better. I think that's really good. So, um, well, let me ask you this, this last, one last question. I think it's extremely important this day and age. You know, you've been lauded for your integrity and civility. Um, why do you think those are so essential in crafting good public policy? Well, I'm, I'm, that's, a, that's a tough one. Uh, I think um, there's a lot of gray area in most public policy issues. Mm -hmm. I think when you come at it from a very partisan way, your ideology might sort of determine where you're going to be on the issue. But in fact, issues are complex. There's oftentimes not good data. And so I think it helps if you have a certain amount of humility about what you know, what you think you know, and if you have that, you're at least going to be more willing and more open to maybe someone changing your mind or, or slightly modifying your view to make it a stronger, better one. So I think civility is just a way of appreciating that there, there, there is much that you have that you can learn about something. And then, again, you're going to treat your, this other person who might think differently from you with, a, with respect. What about integrity? Well, I think integrity is particularly important for, for the office. I think we have to have almost higher standards because in a partisan world, we need to be respected by both sides, with all players mm -hmm. in the capital scene. They don't have to agree with us. They may not appreciate the way we did an analysis, but I would hope that they would feel like the analyst goes about things and they try to do things in an analytically sound way, that they're fair, that they're open to hearing from a lot of people. Wise advice uh, from retiring California legislative analyst, Mac Taylor. I want to thank you for being on the program, but also for 40 years of public service. Thank you, Mark. Thank you so much. From News Talk 580-1059 KMJ, this is the Matty Report, Valley Views Edition. Now here's your host, Mark Kepler. Governor Jerry Brown has been a fixture in state politics for almost 50 years. And while his successor, Gavin Newsom, is also a Democrat, he's also showing that he may have a different agenda. Meanwhile, the California Republican Party is increasingly less competitive statewide. What does all this mean? We'll ask longtime observer of state politics, Dan Walters with Cal Matters. Additional funding for the Maddie Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, 
harvesting health and happiness around the world. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. If you're interested in California politics, our guest Dan Walters of CalMatters needs no introduction. What you may not know, however, is that Dan has been covering California politics for almost 60 years. Long time, Dan. Um, yes, it is. You've seen the entire arc of Governor Brown's uh, governorship, the first and the second. Um, so you're here to share some insights both on that and what's going on with California politics in 2019. Welcome back to the Maddie Report. Thank you. So um, you got this unique perspective. You had a front row seat to the arc of uh, Jerry Brown's political career. Looking back, uh, how would you summarize his first two terms as governor from 74 to 82? Uh, it was kind of like one long campaign. You think about it, he ran for governor in 74, ran for president in 76, ran for re-election in 78, ran for president again in 80, and ran for the U.S. Senate in 82. So he literally was on a full campaign mode, and, and it did distract him from being governor. He was, he was only partially engaged, I guess you would say. And I can't, you can't really say he had a successful first governorship as governor. He may have done something for other reasons, but as governor, he, uh, he was fighting with the legislature a lot uh, and not getting very f far with them. Uh, he, had, he came in, obviously, after Ronald Reagan. It was a big change. And he just, it just never kind of got going. Well, well, let me ask you this. Um, style and substance, the first go-around. Um, Jerry Brown, how would you describe his style and substance? Well, his style in the, in the first go-around, he was... Uh, a, a, he was a rock star governor. You know, he was, he was dating Linda Ronstadt. Mm -hmm. He was in the, all the magazines. The National Press Corps was all, all enthralled to this uh, fresh young guy on the West Coast. And, and he was very young. What was he, 36 as governor? No, he started? 30, 36, I guess, 36. Yeah, when he was it's really incredible lucky. when you think about it. And, uh, and it, that was the style. It was all kind of a big media event. He was kind of publicity mongering and traveling all over the country and everything. Uh, but not much substance, truly. Uh, he didn't really accomplish much as governor. He did some kind of symbolic things. Uh, well, the public employer relations law that he, that he signed was pretty big. It was, and also the agricultural labor right. relations bill. Right. That was his first year. Mm -hmm. And after that, started running for president. Running for that was the, the, kind of the end of it. And he truly kind of botched a few things, and it, and, it, and it worked to his disadvantage, particularly the handling of the big Medfly invasion in the early 80s. And he, uh, it, it made it that he could not win that Senate seat in 82 in a kind of short circuit of his career. I think that if he hadn't run for president in 80, he might have won that Senate seat in 82, and he could have become a viable presidential candidate. But he, as he has admitted since he ran too often and too early, so that was the first term. It was a kind of a big thing. And I think it, uh, it set the stage for the second term, second stint, Jerry Brown 2.0, because I think he, first of all, despite his protestations to the contrary, he really wanted to clean up his record, uh, have something that put him in the history books other than Governor Moonbeam mm -hmm. and Linda Ronstadt's boyfriend, mm -hmm. uh, something that might be compared favorably with his father, with whom he had a kind of a strange relationship. And so he came back the second time, I think, to kind of say, as he said one time, I'm trying to make this for a family. I want to get S done. <laughs> Stuff. <laughs> Stuff, right. Stuff. Done. And he talked about uh, analysis paralysis. He just wanted to well, do how did, stuff. How did his style and substance change in the second go-around from, uh, from 2010 to 18? Well, he was much more engaged. I think that's the main thing. He really, truly was engaged in governing California, and he faced a big budget crisis, and he dealt with it by raising taxes and having a good economy. Uh, he was very lucky in that regard. And, and, 
and he's other than that, however, and, and that's, a, that's still an open book because he may have left a bigger problem for his successor in the terms of the budget. He was willing to settle for kind of half a loaf stuff, uh, a, a partial school finance reform, a partial pension reform. Well, politics is the art of compromise. He was moving the ball down the field on some of these he issues. He was moving it, but moving a ball only partway down the field doesn't, doesn't score your touchdown. And so a lot of his stuff is kind of out there waiting to be seen whether it actually has any kind of long-term effect or not. And of course, his two big pet projects, the Twin Tunnels and the Bullet Train, as I call it, the Bullet Train to Nowhere, <laughs> uh, both have kind of stalled out in many respects and may neither, neither may actually ever come to fruition. Well, what about things like, well, he dealt in some way with the deficit, created a rainy day fund right. and put some money in there. Um, mild pension reform, uh, did some work there. School financing reform, you know, there were some things that, criminal justice reform, yeah, and again, we'll, we'll know whether the book, how well the book weighs out. We'll find out whether the, the budget's in worse shape or not. We'll find out whether the pension reform, even the most optimistic view of the pension reform is it's going to have a very little impact on the unfunded pension liabilities of California, a very, very mild impact. And his school reform put a lot of extra money into the school system, directed that money supposedly to help poor and non-English speaking kids. But so far, it doesn't seem to be having any effect. Well, I'm going to read something back to you that you wrote. You said whether, oh, Bra that's always dangerous. <laughs> whether Brown's legacy goes farther uh, will depend on whether the other things he champions, such things as school finance, school finance plan, criminal justice reforms, bullet train, and the tunnels ultimately succeed or fall by the wayside. So we're going to talk about those topics in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with California reporter Dan Walters uh, about the big political issues that are going to be front and center in 2019. Some of those issues are going to be the ones left um, undone by outgoing Governor Jerry Brown. One of the big ones is water, uh, the water project called Twin Tunnels. That proposal, uh, where, what is it, what's happening with the Twin Tunnels? What's its fate? Where's water on the political agenda for 2019? Oh, well, water's always on the political agenda in California, as we all know, and it goes on year after year after year mostly unresolved, you know, projects are proposed. They, I can remember talking to William Gianelli, who was Ronald Reagan's water guy back in the 19, uh, early 1970s, and he was touting the peripheral canal, which is the predecessor to the tunnel. Right. I mean, this goes on forever. Uh, it's always on the agenda. It's, it's a many moving parts involving the Colorado River, the tunnels, desalination. I mean, there's a are lot of- Are we gonna see anything this year on that topic? think? Not directly, but indirectly. They're in the process of reallocating the water from the Colorado River right now, and that will trigger other things that are going on. It's going to cause some water shortages in Southern California that they're going to try to make up by bringing more water from Northern California, and that's just why they want the tunnels and, you know, that kind of stuff. So, so water is a kind of a slow motion. Uh, it's either a slow motion disaster or a slow motion revolution. I'm not sure which. <laughs> well, let me talk about another inf major infrastructure product. We mentioned it in the earlier segment, and that is high-speed rail. Right. Um, what is the short-term and long-term prospects for high-speed rail? Well, as we all know, Gavin Newsom kind of backed away from the project more or less, kind of, sort of. <laughs> some point. <laughs> yes, I did. No, I didn't. <laughs> he said it's too expensive and the timeline doesn't work. And then he said he wants to finish the line in the uh, San Joaquin Valley and extend it south to Bakersfield, north to Merced, and make it a high-speed line. Well, good luck, because uh, immediately the uh, Trump administration said, in that case, we want our $3.5 billion back because you're not really building a, a statewide system. And so they're fighting over that. Uh, probably the line, the, the current project, which runs from around Chowchilla to 
Uh, Churchill. Uh, oh, God. Um, Shafter. Sha- okay, Shafter. <laughs> but they're supposed to extend it to Bakersfield. <laughs> well, Sorry, you got me there. If Bakersfield allows them to extend it. Right. Uh, well, here's the other thing. They're, they're also talking about extending it to Merced, and that would connect to the ACE train, which would take you over to San Jose and the Caltrain up to the peninsula. So you ha- would have an improved passenger rail system. If, you, if the ACE train is extended. Well, they have the money for that, right? They have the $400 million um, to connect it from Modesto to Merced. Yeah, so... Maybe you should have said, hey, it's a better connection for passenger rail. <laughs> Maybe that's what it turns out to be. And, of course, the current line that's being built could be used for Amtrak service. Right. Uh, if, because, remember, it's not electrified right. as it stands, and so, you know, who, who knows? Uh, clearly, Gavin Newsom is not the fan of this thing that Jerry Brown was, mm-hmm. and so there's that. Same thing with the tunnels. He uh, says maybe one tunnel, but that's maybe one tunnel really doesn't work because it may not be worth right. boring only one tunnel, and who right. knows. Uh, so those things are, are very much up in the air. His school finance thing, Jerry Brown's school finance thing, very much up in the air. It's supposed to help poor and, and non-English speaking kids catch up with every, all the other kids, but so far they aren't. Uh, pension reform. Uh, got validated by the state Supreme Court. Let me me ask you about that. Uh, I wanted to ask you about pension reform. It seems to me that the court's going to play a huge role here in determining whether or not Jerry Brown has a positive legacy on pension reform. Would you agree? And the the cases that are going through the courts right now, it seems like they're nibbling at the edges. They don't want to take on the California rule, which says that basically if you promise someone a benefit when they're hired, you can't change it unless you replace it with an equal benefit. They're kind of nibbling away at that? They're not nibbling away so far at the California rule. In fact, they very distinctly in their first decision on these cases said, we're not going to touch the California rule yet. You know, we, they, we don't get there yet. Well, they like incremental change, right? They don't want this drastic change. Well, it's, it, it's hard to avoid the California rule. It either is or it isn't. And, mm-hmm. and, if, and it may be the only way they can actually vo- eventually solve the pension problem because the, the condition of the pension, the big statewide pension funds themselves, is not getting any better, and uh, another recession would just probably a knockout blow on them. They're struggling. They're struggling to They never recovered from a great recession. Never recovered from a great recession, and they're hitting local governments hard for more money. I mean, a lot more money, like double in the last uh, eight years or so. And even so, they still can't get more than about 65, 70% funded. And that doesn't cut it. And you know, so it's, a, it's an immense problem. And if they, get, if they fall much lower in terms of their fundedness, if that's a word, uh, they get the point of no recovery. And they well, can, I think they, they can well, never, maybe, never get there. Maybe one of the solutions is that a lot of these contracts are negotiated by unions who represent existing employees, not pensioners, and maybe they go and cut a new deal on, on pensions. Who knows? I'll just leave that out oh, there. Oh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's like water. It's, a, it's, a, it's <laughs> many, many moving parts. We know the uh, California's economy, though, is generating billions of dollars in extra money, at least now. Um, but there are a lot of proposals being discussed in Sacramento that even with this extra money, won't be able to necessarily pay for. So what are the priorities? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. Well, Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom and the legislative Democrats have proposed lots of things. Uh, Guaranteed health care for all, a Marshall Plan for affordable housing, a master plan for aging with dignity, a cradle-to-college promise for the next generation, an all-hands approach to ending child poverty, Lots of things. But what are the top priorities for 2019? We're talking to veteran observer of state politics, Dan Walters of Cal Matters. So the governor proposes his initial budget. Um, he seems to be channeling Jerry Brown in some ways. He's talking about budget resiliency. Uh, was that kind of surprising coming from what some folks thought of as a traditional Bay Area liberal? 
Uh, it was a little surprising because he had made all these promises during the campaign, a, a laundry list of very specific proposals. He was going to build three and a half million housing units. He was going to do this and that. And he, but he started backing away from it last year. Once he knew he was going to be governor, he kind of started backing away, kind of edging away from it a little bit. To, and now it's, it's kind of in full, I, not exactly a retreat, kind of a sidestep movement of say, well, yeah, we want to do all these things and we're going to spend a little money on some of these things, but we can't afford the full bore this, that, or the other, and so we have to we have to do what we can do. And you know, it's kind of a isn't that, that kind of the you hear this thing? It was campaigning in poetry and governing in prose, uh, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> right. So anyway, and, and his, so his budget did uh, kind of channel Jerry Brown. He didn't go crazy on all these entitlements that he was talking about during the campaign, like health care and child care and, and early childhood education. Uh, he gave him a few bucks, but he didn't didn't commit the state to a big number going forward. And he did put money into more money in the reserve. He did pay down some debts. He did put some one-time expenditures. You know, that was a pretty much a Jerry Brown-type uh, budget. Uh, and because he knows, as everybody else does, that sooner or later we're probably going to have a recession and things are going to get dicey. And he doesn't want to be out there on a limb with an enormous deficit and leave, a, leave behind oh. something like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay, I'm going to cite you back to you again. Um, you've written that, quote, the, the first big issue likely to emerge is early childhood education, part of Newsom's cradle-to-college promise. Okay, so what's going to happen there? Well, he's, he's offering some money, but it's, it's one-time money to, as he calls it, set up the infrastructure for early childhood education. But it doesn't... Like creating commit, a committee? Doesn't commit, commit it to a long-term new entitlement that, of universal uh, pre-K uh, services the way the advocates want and the way he kind of hinted he was going to do. So it's a, it's a typical kind of down payment watch. And he, he, if he goes crazy on this stuff, he's going to get bitten when we have a recession. And he knows that and he doesn't want that to happen. So he's trying to be prudent mm -hmm. uh, with that. But sooner or later, the people who, who supported him because he promised all these things are going to say, well, Where's the, show me the money. Well, California leads the nation in poverty, right? And, and yeah. one of the reasons for that is the high housing prices. So, and housing's been on the agenda for a while. What's going to happen in 2019 in housing? He is engaged in housing, and Jerry Brown kind of ducked the issue, to tell you the truth. But it, Gavin Newsom is engaged. He's, he's threatening local governments that don't meet their quota of zoning land for housing with loss of transportation money. He's already sued one city, and they've named 47 other cities as, as potential targets. Uh, this kind of sounds like a traditional carrot and stick approach. You're giving some money for, for yeah. housing, but then also a stick. If you don't get off the NIMBY thing, um, you know, we're going to hit you. But as I pointed out in a recent column, there's, a, there's a, an Achilles heel to all that. Is you, even if a city zones enough land for housing, that doesn't build the housing. And right. the building the housing is dependent on private investment, for the most part, because the government doesn't have enough money to do it. Private investment. And you can't force people to build. And as I pointed out, there's also another problem. Even the places that have zoned property and even the places that have projects ready to go, permitted and everything else, they're not building them because they can't get the carpenters and the electricians and the plumbers to build them. We have an enormous shortage of blue-collar labor in California. And that could turn out to be. So between the can't force people to build and can't build because of lack of labor, those could be huge, huge impediments. And then maybe if we it. go into another recession, it, how do you hit the targets? How do you, how do you hit the targets? And the numbers are talking about, I mean, are, are pretty extreme. And we're talking about, you know, I think the average uh, last year was 116,000 units. I mean, he wants quite a bit more than that being You would have to double that to get to his, right. and, and, and at least you need to get to probably up to 200,000. Now, 200,000 is 
presumably doable because we were there before. In the last decade, we got up to 200,000. In fact, we overbuilt a little bit. I actually found decade. the 64-year average, if you care to know, is 165,000 units. Right. So we're, you know. That's doable, but that, that gets you, that allows you to tread water right. on population growth and work into the shortage a little bit and make up for the housing that's lost to fire and all that kind of stuff. So that's a kind of a minimal thing to get to 200,000, but we're a long ways from even 200,000. Okay. Well, up next, we're going to talk, we haven't talked much about the Republicans. There may be a reason for that, given how they performed in the November election. What's happening to the California Republican Party, and can they find their way out of the political wilderness? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. No doubt about it, the midterms dealt an already reeling California Republican Party more setbacks. Democrats won super, super majorities in both houses of the California legislature and won every statewide office for the third election cycle in a row. What is it going to take for the California Republican Party to be relevant in the state again? You know, one of the issues here uh, in the midterms was the voter turnout. And frankly, older white males were, had less influence than young ethnic voters. Um, and it looks like Democrat, the uh, demographics of California and the voters of California are starting to now match up a little more closely. What does that mean for the California Republican Party? Well, it doesn't mean anything good unless they change their, their tune quite a bit. Uh, but Donald Trump was a huge drag on the Republicans this year. They didn't need that. I mean, that's like they were already wounded. And this about was the coup de grace, in a way, to have, to, to have Trump. Seems like there. every Democrat was running against Donald Trump. Every Democrat was running against Trump. And Trump is very unpopular in California. I mean, it's just, it's just it is. And so the new effort, I guess I'd say, is among the Republicans is to try to distance themselves, at least the state party, distance themselves from Donald Trump. They have a new party uh, chair who's young, Latina, from the suburbs. Uh, and a that mother kinda, of two. That kind of hits all the buttons that have been mm -hmm. missing the Republicans lately. Uh, you have the young, the women, the suburban, <laughs> and so forth. So uh, it's an optics thing, obviously, and that's, that's, it takes a lot more than optics. But uh, you might want to ask you about that, though, because you know, part of her team, the new chair of the California Republican Party, she has an, a, a executive officers. One is a Taiwanese-American immigrant. Another is a person who's gay. I mean, that going to make a difference? It's all optics. I don't think it changes any voters. It gives them a chance to remake themselves, maybe. But I think if there's, a, if there's, a, if there's hope for the Republicans, remember, a generation ago, the Republicans were doing very well in California. Uh, 94. Yeah, governorships election, back to back. Election, yeah. Uh, if there's a hope there is that the Republicans, or the, excuse me, the Democrats have not done particularly well. I can remember back in the 70s when Democrats had 57% of the registered voters. Now they're down 43, 44%. Yeah, right, right. And yes, the Republicans are down in, the, you know, the 20s, below the Mendoza line, down in the <laughs> mid-20s. But the fact is that the, the growth of voting in California has been mostly by people who are not aligned with either party. And so that makes the Democrats vulnerable in the sense that if they do something that kind of alienates those non-aligned voters. Uh, who they can overreach. They could overreach. If they go crazy and start raising all the taxes on tax everything that walks or, or talks, uh, they could overreach. But, you and know, and but there are people in the party who would, who would like to do that. Yeah, but the, but the Democrats are not a monolithic party, right? You've got the Valley Democrats who are very different than the, the Bay Area Democrats. Very, very different. Right. Uh, and very different from the Southern California Democrats as right. well. Yeah, it's not a monolithic party. In fact, that's what happens when a party becomes dominant. It kind of starts breaking up into factions. And we're seeing that already with the Democrats. That said, the Republicans have a long way to go to gain relevance again in California. And I think my guess is as long as Donald Trump is president, they're not going to gain relevance. Uh, and the, it, 
they are kind of just out of touch with what California is today, and it's very difficult for them to get back in touch. Well, let me ask you, maybe in the short term, uh, are the 2020 propositions the only real chance that California Republicans have to really effectu effectuate public policy? The, the, they need to focus on the propositions in 2020 I, as opposed well, to changing it's, the it's, legislature? It's, it's, or the, it wouldn't be the Republicans doing it. You, you might see... Uh, more conservative interest groups try to use the ballot in 2020, and right. it might help the Republicans, it might help turnout. Listen, I don't think the Republicans have hit bottom in California. You, you had a turnout, about 65% turnout in this election, which was considered- They're in the low 20s in terms of registration. 65 voter turnout. Okay. Yeah, 65% voter turnout for the, all the electorate. Right. That was 20 points higher than it was four years ago. And it's gonna be higher in but the it's gonna be another 10 points higher the probably in election. 2020. Right. And there are at least two more congressional seats. Remember, they, they whacked the Republican delegation in half from 14 to 7. Right. Every I, close seat went to the Democrats. Every close seat went to the Democrats. And there's a possibility that they could get a couple more, I think, in 2020. There are a couple of... The they're targeting. They're already targeting some seats, they're, the Democrats. They're already starting. People who... Republicans who kind of barely made it, don't have good voter registration and so forth. I think there's a couple of seats that could go. Okay, only got 30 seconds, but I want to ask you this question. I want to fit this in. I'm wondering if both parties are in trouble. Um, when you looked at motor voter, the registration... 52% registered as no party preference, mm -hmm. independent. That's normally 33%. Is that just a one-off or is that a trend? No, it is a trend. I mean, the, the, the non-aligned, historically, the uh, independent voters and the minor party voters have been about 10% of the electorate. Now we're up to well over 25% and growing. So they are going to be an ever bigger factor. It's one of the reasons why the Re Democrats haven't been growing either. The Republicans and have been I shrinking, the Democrats haven't been growing. The big growth has been in the non-aligned voters. And those voters are potentially up for grabs uh, going forward. And particularly when some of the more uh, recent immigrant groups become in second and third and fourth generations, there's a tendency to become, maybe they become homeowners, entrepreneurs, and that sort of thing. And they tend to be, maybe move a little bit more conservative. So I guess we're going to see. Stay tuned, I guess, the answers. want to thank tuned. Dan Walsh from Calmatos for joining us. This is Mark Keppel for the Maddie Institute. Thanks for joining us. The views and opinions expressed on the Maddie Report are those of the individuals participating in the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the California Channel or the Maddie Institute. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the points and opinions expressed on the Maddie Report, visit our website at maddieinstitute.org. The Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Maddie Institute. Providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ.